something I'd like to do before I get into my message is I would like to pray for the people of Turkey and Syria. Uh, Y'all have probably been watching the news. And over 20,000 people is what they're saying. You just, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. It really is. So um, there's Christians there, there's Muslims there, there's all kinds of folks there, but they're all God's children. You know, God loves the world. That's why he sent Jesus. So um, would you pray with me and just have some special prayer? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and then I'm going to ask for s- some silent prayer and just for you all to pray just your own prayers and then I'll close. So let's pray together. Lord God, uh, we know that these things have been happening for centuries, for thousands of years. Lord Jesus, you can talk about it, rumors of wars and earthquakes. But God, we pray for the people of Turkey and of Syria and, and, and that whole region there. Um, so much life has been lost, so, so much devast- just devastation, buildings collapsed. Um, so we lift them up to you. Um, we can't fix it. Um, but we know that you are the God of comfort. We pray that you would comfort them in the midst of this and also um, your body, uh, Lord, the body of Christ, that you would raise it up for, um, in our country to bring assistance and help to them in a very difficult time. We thank you for those that were rescued, just miraculous rescues. But we just pray that you would be there with them and comfort them and their families and the mothers and the fathers and the grandmothers and the grandfathers and all of the children and and those that were lost. Lord, we grieve with them. We grieve with them. And pray that you would um, give them comfort and help us to know, help us to remember to pray for them uh, in this difficult time of sadness that they go through. Lord, listen to us each now as we silently pray, lift up our prayers to you for all of the people affected um, by these earthquakes. Listen as we pray silently. answer exactly maybe how we think you should but you always answer you just don't not answer but sometimes your answer is no sometimes it's different from what we want but we know you hear you always hear you listen and you answer our prayers so we thank you for that we pray for your for your help and and your comfort for these people we lift them up to you lord in your name jesus we pray and all god's people said So um, my family has been this family thread. You know, we have the, all the kids and not the grandkids, but Sandy and I and our family. And I said, they've all been going around about the UFO thing, right? And uh, anyway, my daughter texted me about, are we going to get the bombshell for the UFO <laughs> invasion? We're shooting down UFOs. So anyway, it, all things come to mind like War of the Worlds, you know. They're sending out memes about all this. But um, anyway, I'm sure it's going to be fine, right? It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Um, But I want to welcome you back to our series on the gospel according to Luke. You remember it's kata what? Kata lukan. Kata lukan, according to Luke in the Greek. Today in chapter 5, we see Jesus doing a lot of things. 
He's calling disciples. He's healing leprosy. He's raising up a paralyzed man to walk and forgiving his sins. We see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners and going toe-to-toe with the scribes and the Pharisees, the established religion, Jewish faith of the time. Um, Last week, we looked at chapter 4, and just briefly, um, we had a lot of temptations in chapter 4, and we're not talking about the temptations on Motown record, are we? My girl, my girl, right? Not those temptations, right? It was Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. It was sort of a chess match with moves and counter moves between Satan and Jesus, a karate exhibition back and forth with the devil taking swings at Jesus with three temptations. And of course, he comes right back with the word of God as a counter move to overcome temptation and to send the devil packing and defeated. So Luke seems to offer uh, in this thing, he seems to offer two Old Testament parallels to what's happening with Jesus in the wilderness. I talked about this last week. The first one was the temptation of who? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which of course they failed miserably. But where the first Adam failed, Luke is saying that the second Adam, Jesus, will prevail. Luke presents Jesus as the second Adam. We know that from the genealogy, remember, that comes right before the temptations. The second Adam who would succeed and triumph over sin and temptation and the devil for us. Not just for him, but for us. The second parallel for Jesus' 40 days of temptation in the wilderness is the 40 years of testing in the wilderness for the people of Israel. They're tested to see if they could trust God with the situation and keep his commandments in the midst of of the wilderness and trouble. Jesus even quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which has to do with that time in the wilderness. He says, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But the bottom line issue for the temptations was this. If you remember, it's Jesus, okay, being tempted by the devil to do what? To not trust God. To not trust God. And he does that with us, doesn't he? to not trust God, to not trust his plan for the Messiah and the salvation of the world. That's the theme of the temptations. That's what Satan is trying to do. And as a brief aside, Matthew and the rest of the disciples knew this story, okay? And this is how. They probably heard it straight from the mouth of Jesus. How else would they know, right? Jesus probably included his account of this in a uh, teaching on resisting temptation and trusting God in all things. So they heard this straight from Jesus. Chapter 4 also marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry with mixed reviews. You remember things didn't go so well in Nazareth, right? No. They went downhill quickly. Remember, they tried to throw him off a cliff. But things went really well in Capernaum and in other parts of the country. So kind of mixed reviews on the start of his ministry. But Luke gives us accounts of events that show us that in that chapter that Jesus has power and authority over evil and demonic forces and over sickness and disease. Chapter 4 ends with this. The people of Capernaum are saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Jesus says this. It's very telling about who Jesus is and why he came. He says, I must proclaim the kingdom of God to other cities, for I was sent for this purpose. He was sent for that purpose. So now we're on chapter 5, and it starts with a miraculous event which reveals 
that Jesus also has power over nature. So listen as I read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. It should be up on the screen. If you've got your Bibles or your devices, please follow along. Verses 1 through 9. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, the crowd pressing around him, and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon Peter, right? And asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began to teach the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and we caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Can you imagine? They began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Oh, Lord, I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Would you pray with me? Lord God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight today, Lord. May the words of Scripture that we will read today in this fifth chapter of Luke and the way that it falls um, from me and upon our ears and our understanding, we pray that you would move in our lives, that you, would, that you would challenge us and that you would encourage us through these words. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us corporately as a church, but also individually by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you. So Jesus is teaching to a large crowd on the lake of Gennesaret. By the way, so there is no confusion, the lake of Gennesaret and the Sea of Galilee are one and the same. They're the same. It's also called, it has another name, it's also called the Sea of Tiberias, which Herod um, named it after his Roman overlord to earn some favor with him. And it was the Sea of Tiberias, named after Tiberius Caesar. But all three names apply to the same body of water. And just a fun fact here, no extra charge. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. Did you know that? How many of you knew that? Anybody? I didn't. I didn't. 699 feet below sea level. The Dead Sea is lower, but it's salt water. This is fresh water. So Jesus is on the shore of that lake, the lowest lake in the world, speaking the word of God to a crowd of people. Now, the image that I have in my mind is that it says the people are pressing in. I kind of see him backed up against the water and people sort of pressing in like an amphitheater, kind of curved around him. That's the image that I have in my mind. And Jesus notices that there are two boats at the water's edge. And the fishermen are cleaning their nets, right? So Jesus got into one of the boats that belonged to Simon. Now, ordinarily, I would think that would be kind of weird. You know, someone just, you know, without asking, just hopping into your boat, right? But we need to remember, okay, Simon knew Jesus. You remember he had healed 
Simon's mother-in-law in the house. So it wasn't weird at all. He knew Simon. So at his request, Jesus' request, Simon pushes the boat out a little offshore, and Jesus has a little elbow room for teaching, and he teaches the people from the boat. They're just a little bit out of the water. Then the miraculous happening happens. Then it happens. When Jesus had finished teaching, he told Simon to put out into the deeper water and let down the nets for a catch. Well, Simon's like, Lord, we were out all night, and we caught nothing. He didn't caught nothing. He doesn't say this, but you know they were tired, right? You know they were tired. You know they just wanted to go home. They just wanted to be done. Their nets were all cleaned. Um, they, they probably just wanted to go home. It was Miller time, right? That's for them. That's what they're thinking. It's time to go home. But Simon says this to Jesus. He says, but I will do as you say. You see, he's, Simon has seen some of the things that Jesus has done, and one of them is very personal. Who? His mother-in-law. He saw that. And so he's like, okay, because it's you, because you are the one asking me, all right, I'll do it. I think if it was anyone else, anyone else, Simon Peter would have said, go fly a kite. Okay, I'm going home. But it was Jesus. And he knew Jesus. He'd seen what he did. So we read about what happens, uh, and the nets are full of fish. They begin to break, so they call their partners to come and help them, and the two boats are so full that they're taking on water and sinking. Now, if you are a boat owner, you know that takes a lot of weight to displace that much water where it's coming over the sides. Those boats were full. They were full. I can't imagine. But in verse 8, Simon Peter falls to his feet and says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. What's he saying? He's saying, You're, you're not me. You're not like me. You're nothing like me. I'm a sinful, I'm a sinful man. I've never seen or met anyone like you. That's what he's saying. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of what? What just happened? The catch of fish that had been taken. Now, I used to think that I was a pretty decent fisherman. But that changed. One year, our family went on a vacation to Boca Grande, which is near Inglewood Beach, which is just south of Tampa. My granddad had a little cottage in Inglewood Beach, and he would take me there regularly as a young boy. And we always caught fish. We just always caught fish, trolling in the Gulf with spoons. We'd get mackerel, fishing with pinfish in the surf. We, I caught a 16-pound snook on a little Walmart Zebco, and an 18-pound and, and redfish and trout on the flats. I, mean, I was with my granddad. We, we always caught fish. So I promised my kids, I said, you know, when we go on this vacation, I said, we're going to catch fish. We're going to catch fish. I know, I know all about it. See, I used the same lures, the same rods, the same baits. But guess how many, it was amazing, guess how many fish we caught? Zero. Zero. Except John Michael with a gig, gigged a whiting in the surf. It was about this long. That was it. So needless to say, the kids were very disappointed in dear old dad. Right? And I was the butt of many jokes for a very long time. Still, actually, still. So I try not to talk about fishing, okay? But here I am, right? But I learned a very important but embarrassing lesson that year. I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought, I can catch fish. I know the rods, I know the lures, I know the baits, even the spots. But it wasn't that. You see, it was my grandfather. That's why we caught fish. 
It was my grandfather, Jack McDowell. It was him. That's why we caught fish. And this story is similar to that, except it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the reason they caught all those fish. But listen, two boatloads of fish. Two boatloads. They had never seen anything like it. I wonder if Jesus was the inspiration for the Marvel Marvel comic books Aquaman. Because he commanded the fish, right? Because that's what Jesus did. That's what he's doing. He's like the fish whisperer, right? Even the fish obey his voice. Two boatloads out of nowhere. But this is what that means, okay? This is what that means. It means that Jesus has authority, power and authority over nature. Not just fish. Over nature. And Luke wants us to know that. Jesus has power and authority over over nature. In verses 10 and 11, we are told that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are there when all of this happens. They're the companions. We're talking about they're the ones that helped with the fish. And Jesus calls all of them to follow him. And listen to what it says. Listen to what it says in verses 10 and 11. It says, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Andrew was probably around there somewhere, but it doesn't say. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, for now, from now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I hope somebody got the fish. But they left everything. That's what it says. They left everything and followed him. From now on, you'll be catching people. I believe Mark says that you will be fishers of, right, fishers of men. You'll be catching people. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16 next, where Jesus heals a person with leprosy, which, by the way, today, it's treatable. Leprosy is treatable. And most people in the population are immune to it. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Most people are immune to leprosy, but I I researched it when I was working on my sermon. But at the time, it was a life sentence or a death sentence, which whatever you want to call it. Okay? A person with leprosy was a total outcast from society. You were even separated from your family and your friends. You couldn't stay home. You were completely ostracized. Unless you could, unless, unless you could prove that it was gone. That you didn't have it anymore. Some kind of complete healing. And to do that, you had to go show yourself to the priest. And they would decide if you were safe for social contact. It was their call. The priest had to decide. So you wouldn't have to stay in the leper colony. Uh, In my research this week, I also learned that leprosy can be cured with antibiotics. That's the good news, if you ever get it. And you can get it from armadillos. That was also in my research. I used to play with armadillos all the time. I guess I'm immune. I don't know. But you can get it from armadillos. But anyway, it can be cured by antibiotics. That's the good news. The bad news is, though, it does not repair the damage that's done. The nerve damage blindness can come from it and also the gnarling of the fingers and the hands they can get rid of the bacteria that causes it but they cannot fix the damage it's it's not repairable so listen for some of that as i read verses 12 through 16 of luke while he was in one of the cities behold there was a man covered with leprosy and when he saw jesus he fell on his face and implored him saying lord If you are willing, 
you can make me clean. This person is desperate. Desperate. It's a life sentence. Right? And he stretched out his hand, that is Jesus, and touched him. Who touches lepers? Well, Jesus. Nobody else does. They're like, ah, unclean, right? He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. The leprosy left him. And I think it means the effects of the leprosy too, not just the leprosy. And he ordered him, and he ordered him to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded. Remember, Luke wants the Gentile audience to know this is according to the law. He's doing what he's supposed to do in the law when that happens. It's a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. That tells us that all of us need a break sometime, right? All of us need a break sometime. Even Jesus slips away to pray. So again, Jesus has power and authority over disease, but listen, even leprosy. Even leprosy. And like I said, I think when he says that he was cleansed, I think it's not like the antibiotics, right? But it's not just that the leprosy is gone, but the effects, the negative effects of the leprosy. Because it said he was covered, right? It was gone. That's the way Jesus does it. You see, leprosy is taking this to a whole new level of disease. Like I said at the time, it was a life sentence, a death sentence, medically, socially, physically. This was not a fever. This was not a run-of-the-mill sickness. It's leprosy. Whole new level. Whole new level. And Jesus cleanses him. Cleanses him. Jesus has power and authority over evil, over sickness and disease, over nature, fish, right? Over nature, and even leprosy. Next, in verses 17 through 26, Luke continues to take it to the next level in revealing who Jesus is. It's his account of Jesus healing a paralyzed person and forgiving his sins. And so what this is, well, it's power over disease again. It's power over paralysis, right? But it's more than that. Actually, that's not the most important thing about this story. In fact, the way Luke lays it out, the Pharisees don't have a problem with Jesus healing a paralyzed man at all. That's all good with them, okay? That's not what this is about. This is about forgiveness. That's what this account is about. It's about forgiveness. The Pharisees take issue with Jesus forgiving somebody's sins. They're like, who does that? Okay? Who does that, dude? Right? Okay? He's like, you can't just walk around forgiving sins. They said, it's just not done. That's what the Pharisee says. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Only, they say this, only God can do that. Only God can forgive sins. That's what their issue is. That's where the Pharisees are coming. That's what they're upset about. That's what this is all about. And Jesus does what Jesus does with the scribes and the Pharisees. He handles them masterfully. He handles them masterfully, as we would expect. Listen as I read verses 17 through 26. Follow along with me on the screen, if you will. One day he was teaching... And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. 
And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, him being Jesus, right? But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowds, just like at the water, and the crowds were pressed around him, it was packed. They went up onto the roof, and they led him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Now, this is not a thatched roof. <laughs> I, I guess they got in trouble. Don't you get in trouble for taking tiles off a roof? I would think. It's a more expensive roof, right? But that's what they do, and they had to take off quite a few to get a stretcher down there, right? So they do that, and they lower him right down in front of Jesus, and this is what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, seeing their faith, Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemy, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know, you hear that? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what this is about. Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment. Well, I guess so. They began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, which is more like respect, but it's, it's like, whoa, like you would fear a policeman if he pulled you over, right? That's what he's talking about. We have seen remarkable things today, and I would say to Luke, that's an understatement. That's an understatement, right? He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, Luke wants us to know this, that's why he's included this account of what Jesus did in his gospel, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up. Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Jesus, the Son of Man, this is important. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, has authority to forgive sins. And they were blown away by what they experienced. They were absolutely blown away. And what Luke is revealing to the world is this. Jesus has power and authority over evil, sickness and disease, nature, even leprosy and paralysis. But here's the main point. Here's the main point. The Son of Man, the Son of God, is doing things that only God can do. That's the point. Jesus is doing things that only God can do, even forgiving sins. Who does that? God does. Oh, and Jesus does. See where we're going? See where we're going? After that miraculous happening, Jesus calls another disciples. But this time, it's not a fisherman. Not even close. Not this one. It's someone from a completely different sector of Jewish society. Someone with a very sketchy and dishonest profession who is hated pretty much by everyone. Everyone, except 
other tax collectors, because that's what he is. He's a tax collector. They were considered traitors to the nation of Israel, scoundrels who sold themselves out to the Roman Empire, turned against their own people. They switched teams. They switched horses. His name is Levi, also known as Matthew. Um, they are one and the same, so don't be confused by that. Like Simon and Peter, they had two names. Bartholomew also had a couple different names. Matthew was also known as Levi, not unusual. Luke uses this account of this event with Jesus to reveal more about who Jesus is, why he came, and here we go, who he came for. Not for those who are well, that's not who the doctor comes for, not for those who are well, but for the sick, and also the sick in soul, not just physically. Not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sinners to repent. Also, in these passages, once again, we hear the criticisms of the Pharisees about the disciples of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples, this is their complaint. They're just way too much fun. That's their complaint. They have way too much fun. They aren't as religious and pious as the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees. So listen for those things as I read 27 through 35. Follow along with me, if you will. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow. I don't know if that meant the money, too. I don't know. Maybe just the booth. And Levi gave a big reception, which is a big party, for him in his house. And there was a crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Most of their friends, I'm sure, were just tax collectors. They didn't have a lot of friends. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at, at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician but those who are sick, and like I said, sick of the soul. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and pray. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink, parte. Right? And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. So he's pointing to what kind of an event? A wedding. And that was sometimes a several-day event of, of rejoicing and celebrating, right? But the days, he said, verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. They will fast in those days. So Jesus is making a simple point here, okay? This is a time for celebration. This is a time to rejoice. The Son of God has come into the world. The Son of Man is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. There will be plenty of time to fast and pray after his crucifixion. But for now, party on, dude. Rejoice. Be glad. Be glad. The last four verses of chapter 5 are a type of parable um, where Jesus compares the old to the new. That's the contrast. Old cloth and new cloth. Old wineskins and new wineskins. Old wine and new wine. Old ways and new ways. And he doesn't say the words, but he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. 
Listen for that as I read the last four verses, 36 through 39. And he was also telling them a parable. There you go, a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. It's not the same. It's different. That's what he's saying. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined because new wine expands. The, the skins have to be pliable and supple, not brittle like the old wineskins. You can't put new wine in the old wineskins. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. For he says, listen to this because this is important, the old is good enough. They're like, I'm okay with the old. I don't need the new. I'm okay with the old. Jesus seems to be comparing Old Testament institutional Judaism with what he came to bring to the world, which was the new wine of the good news and the kingdom of God. That's what the new wine symbolizes. Jesus initiated a new covenant in his blood and new commandments like love one another even as I have loved you and, and pulled out very important pieces of the old covenant like love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself and treat others the way you want to be treated from Deuteronomy. You've heard me say this many times from this pulpit. Christianity is a whole new ballgame, isn't it? Christianity is in a league of its own. There is nothing else in the world, religiously, any other way, there is nothing else like Christianity, including Judaism. Yet, Christianity is built on Judaism, is it not? I mean, Jesus was what? Jesus is Jewish. He's Jewish. He is the Messiah that's promised and foretold in the Old Testament by the Jewish prophets like Isaiah, right? The New Covenant is built on the Old Covenant. Jesus is dealing with that right here. The New Covenant is built on the Old Covenant, and Jesus came to bring the New, the New Covenant. But he didn't come to get rid of the Old Covenant. I'm going to jump over to Matthew here real quick with a cross-reference. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. It won't be up there because I came up with this after I turned my slides in, okay? Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, what? Fulfill them. To fulfill them. To make them different. To make them new. To make them what they're supposed to be, actually. And just two verses after that, he says something very unusual, which would be disturbing, mainly for people at the time. He says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem. Because if you were to ask anyone in the city of Jerusalem, Nazareth, Capernaum, Bethlehem, Cana, any of those towns, if you were to ask them, who are the most righteous religious people in Israel, what would they say? The scribes, the Pharisees, and the priests. They're saying, we've got to be better than them to see the kingdom of heaven? Wow. That's a problem. Because of what Jesus says right there in verse 20 of chapter 5. I'm sure there were good-hearted and well-intentioned Pharisees. We know of Nicodemus, right? John talks about him. He loved Jesus, helped um, Joseph actually bury him in the Gospel of John, right? 
But here's the thing. The system had become rotten. The system. Not all the scribes and all the Pharisees, but the system. It was hollow, ritualistic legalism. They were going through all the right motions for all the wrong reasons. Their heart wasn't right. They were crossing every T, dotting every I for the purpose of being better than the next person, or at least to be thought of as holier and better. It was works righteousness. Works righteousness. Legalism. Jesus came to bring the new. He came to fulfill the law. To bring the new. To reform religion. To reinterpret what righteousness really is. To renew God's people and to give them a new heart. This is important. A new heart. In John chapter 3, Jesus said it this way. And I think he's saying the same thing. You must be born again. You must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be new, a new heart. You must be new wineskins, new cloth. See, here in Luke, the old cloth and the old wineskins represent the religious system that had become rotten, hollow, ritualistic legalism. Jesus came to change that, to fulfill that, to make it new. He came to give us a new heart toward God, one that is not brittle and stone but supple and sensitive to God able to hold this new wine. The cloth needs to become new to be a Christian to be born again, right? The cloth needs to become new. The wineskins need to become new because they cannot hold the new wine of the new covenant. We need to become new born again from the inside out not just in the outside, but the inside out, a new heart. In the last verse, Jesus reveals that not everyone will do that. Not everyone will receive the new wine. Not everyone will get it. They won't get the new wine of the good news of Jesus Christ. Some will say, and he says it in the last verse there, ah, the old is good enough. My life is good enough. Things are good enough. I don't want the new wine. I don't need the new wine. I'm fine with where I'm at. The old is good enough. They won't get it. Jesus is saying that. Some people won't get it. They won't understand it. They won't want it. They won't love it. They won't need it. My daughter got me this t-shirt a couple of years ago on Father's Day. And it's one of my favorite shirts. I, I wear it a lot. I think Jeffrey's seen it. I wear this shirt a lot. And, uh, and it says at the top of it, it says, what's it say? It says, world's greatest, and then it's got these things underneath it. And then at the bottom, it says, you wouldn't understand. And I can't tell you how many people, like in the grocery store, I usually go to the grocery on Mondays. Winn-Dixie, by the way. Oh, sometimes I go to, Sandy likes Publix. Sometimes I go to Publix. But anyway, I'll walk in, and somebody will walk up and say, yeah, I don't understand. And I go, oh. Oh, and at first, and then I realized, what do you not understand? Oh, the shirt. Oh, yeah, the shirt. Say, well, it says world's greatest, and I said, these are guitar chords. This is a D, this is an A, and this is a D. Dad. World's greatest dad. And I said, my daughter bought me this because I'm a guitar player, and that's why you don't understand, right? All right? So that's her thing. 
But people, some people like that, they don't get it when it comes to Jesus. They just don't understand. They don't want it. They don't want it. But here's my problem, okay? <laughs> I don't understand what's not to get about Jesus. I really don't. I don't understand what's not to get about John 3:16. God loved you so much. He gave his only son so that whoever trusts in him, believes in him, should not perish. That means die for all eternity, but have eternal life. What's not to love about that, right? What's not to get about that? What is, what I don't understand is what's, what's not to get about Ephesians chapter 2? It's all about grace and mercy and faith. We're saved by grace, a free gift. We're saved by grace through faith, through believing, right? That's how we're saved. Not by works. And even the faith, he says, and, and, and that's not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God. Not by works that anyone should boast. In other words, not by the things you do so that anybody can say, well, I'm a better Christian than you are. I'm better. That's not what saves us. Our works don't save us. We do good works because we're what? Saved. You've heard me say that many times, right? I want you to know that you are new cloth. You're new cloth. You are new wineskins because Jesus is in you. I'm a new wineskin. You cannot be a Christian and be in the old and the brittle, right? You must be born again. And you guys know that. But Jesus is saying some people won't. They just won't get it. They'll say, the old is, is enough. It's enough. The old is enough. It's fine. So don't be discouraged when you try and share the good news with people. Okay? I have a person that I have been witnessing to. Uh, I haven't been beating them over the head with the Bible, but I've been witnessing to them for, um, for 36 years. Yes, 36 years. I've been inviting them to church. And uh, they have never come. Now, they sent their kids to my youth group, and I married both of their children. <laughs> I, I, not me personally. But I did the ceremony, right? But they've never come to church. But I want you to know that I am not giving up. I'm going to invite them again. Okay? They're just thinking, I don't want that. I don't need Jesus. It, the oldest, my life is fine. My life is good enough. But I'm not giving up, and I don't want you to give up. You're new wineskins. You're new cloth. You're fill, full of the new wine, of the good news of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So don't give up on those people, right? Don't give up. You know what? I was one of those people. Somebody invited me, and I finally said yes. And uh, I'm still here. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the new wine the new covenant, the new cloth, the new wineskins. We thank you that we are born again because you've allowed us to be, you've allowed us to be. That we've received your grace and your mercy. We have received you, O Son of God, into our hearts and into our lives. And you who have the authority to forgive sins, you have forgiven us and made us right with, with God. We're reconciled to the Father. And we thank you for that. I pray these words 
that are spoken, that they would challenge us and, and help us to not to say, oh, well, I'm just not going to share the gospel anymore, but help us to be all the more excited about just living our faith, not beating people over the head with the Bible, but just where, we, where you give us opportunity to invite people to church, to talk with them about our faith and how you have changed our lives by your grace and your mercy. And we're no better than anybody else. Lord, we're no better than anybody else. But we are forgiven. We're forgiven, we're accepted, we're received because we have trusted in you. And we thank you for that. We pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said,